Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Lamentations is actually written by Jeremiah. Now, it's interesting. You can go to commentaries and get all confused because they have all different kinds of opinions. I believe, and I think you can trust, that Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations. Uh, He wrote it. It was written sometime after 586 B.C. The reason why we know it is because that's when Jerusalem was... was, uh, went into captivity. That's when the Babylonians finally at the last, they've been, they've been surrounding Jerusalem and dealing with the, with the people of Judah for 12 years. And finally, they've, they've gone in. They've, they've uh, ransacked Jerusalem. They've hauled off the captives. They've left a few in the land, um, the very poor people to take, and the very old and the very weak to just take care of the land while uh, this captivity is going on. And uh, Jeremiah was given the option Um, to go with the captives to Babylon or to stay. And he opted to stay with those who remain behind. And so uh, the book of Lamentations is Jeremiah's Lamentations. Now, there are five poems that make up the book of Lamentations. And we've got five chapters. It's kind of a a neat way that they did that. But um, chapters 1, chapters 2, and chapters 4, Four are each 22 verses long, and they're in Hebrew acrostic. What a Hebrew acrostic is, what it means is, each verse of these chapters begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet in order. There are other books in the Bible. I think Psalm 119 is an acrostic, if I'm not mistaken, as well. But So these are 22, the Hebrew alphabet is 22 um, letters, and so each of these verses... Um, in these three chapters I mentioned, begins with a Hebrew letter. Now, chapter 3 is also an acrostic, but it is 66 verses long. And in that book, or excuse me, in that chapter, every third verse starts with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But it's nonetheless an acrostic. This is a a form of Hebrew poetry. Now, chapter 5 also is 22 verses, but it is not an acrostic. And chapter 5 happens to be Jeremiah's prayer to God from his heart. And I love the fact that it's not an acrostic, excuse me, that it doesn't follow a pattern. The reason why is because, you know, uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes when you're praying, you know, if you've been raised to pray a certain way, you know, it's our Father in heaven, and you go through all the different things, and and your prayers can sometimes become rote, right? I mean, you just kind of rattle them off. And... uh, Jeremiah chapter 5 is a prayer from Jeremiah's heart, and he doesn't follow a set pattern. And, you know, that just rings true to my own heart because there are times when I just have to pour out my heart to God. I'm not, you know, I'm not all politically correct in how I say it. I'm just, God, help me, or, you know, this is the situation, or whatever, my frustration. And you just pray from your heart. And God hears you, and he answers prayer. And he loves it when you pray, pray from your heart. In fact, he would rather you pray from your heart than to go through some, you know, these and thous and, you know, get all the, all the things correct and stuff. And, and so I love that, that about chapter 5. It's a prayer from the heart. Now, um, I don't know, how many of you guys have written, re- written, how many of you guys read the book of Lamentations before? Yeah, okay, so some of you. Um, I've read it, you know, going through the chapters, or going through the book, um, the Bible, chapter by chapter. I've, I've gone across it a few times. But um, sometimes we look and I go, it's kind of an obscure book, in the Old Testament. Um, it's not an obscure book 
tucked away in the Bible that's rare, rarely read. Now, that might be true for you or I, <laughs> that you know, we, don't rare, we rarely read Lamentations. But it's interesting. There's a Jewish festival called Tisha B'Av, and uh, it's a Jewish celebration, and Tisha B'Av means the ninth day of Av. And it's primarily commemorating the destruction of the first and the second temples. The first temples were, we're talking about this morning. Uh, it was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. And then after 70 years, they went back to the land, and they were there for many, many years. And then the, uh, the Romans in 70 A.D. destroyed the temple, the second, or excuse, yeah, the second temple. And so Tisha B'Av commemorates those events. Um, and the way that they commemorate the events is by fasting and by reading the book of Lamentations. Um, and what was really kind of odd to me, today's what, the 22nd of July? Tisha B'Av in 2013 began on the evening of Monday, July 15th, and ended on the evening of Tuesday, July 16th. So the Jewish people just read the book of Lamentations, and here we are studying it, so I think that's kind of cool. Um, now, imagine how... The Jewish people in particular, or in, ge- in general, excuse me, and Jeremiah in particular felt watching the temple being destroyed, watching Jerusalem being overrun by Gentiles, the enemies, basically, especially in light of God's promises for the future of Jerusalem. I'm going to read something to you out of Micah chapter 4. It says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and many excuse me and people shall flow to it many nations shall come and say come and let us go up to the mountain of the lord to the house of the god of jacob he will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths for out of zion the law shall go forth and the word of the lord from jerusalem he shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off they shall beat their uh, swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all people walk, each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. What a tremendous promise for the future of Jerusalem. And you know, the Jews, are they're, they're, they're clinging to these promises, and yet, in reality, they're watching Jer- the temple being destroyed, Jerusalem just burning on fire, and everybody's going into captivity. Can you imagine the feelings that they felt? You know, for 44 years, Jeremiah had been warning the inhabitants of Judah to repent and turn back to the Lord for 44 years. He started as a young man, and now he's not so young anymore. And for 44 years, there was not a single person who repented. Now, sometimes I can get discouraged in ministry, but can you imagine ministering for 44 years and not a single convert, not a single person responding to your messages? Talk about discouraged. (laughs) But he was faithful. For 44 years, Jeremiah's warnings were rebuffed. And so Jeremiah here, he's watching the nation 
going into captivity. He's seeing Jerusalem destroyed. The temple's been desecrated. And Jewish tradition says that Jeremiah went and he sat in a cave outside the wall of Jerusalem by the Damascus Gate, excuse me, by the Damascus Gate, known as Jeremiah's Grotto, and he penned these poems. So he's just sitting there in a cave watching all the terrible things happening as he's writing these poems, his lamentations. Verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1 describe the miserable condition and the consequences of sin. And that's where Jeremiah starts, and that's where we're going to start. Lamentations 1, verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who was great among the nations. The princes among the provinces has become a slave. Here Jeremiah is painting a picture, and it's a picture of a widow sitting on the ground in a position of mourning after the destruction that's just occurred. Now, you know, if, if you've looked at, uh, when I grew up, Life Magazine. Do you remember Life Magazine? You know, they used to, they'd have the most tremendous pictures, you know. And when I grew up, of course, the Vietnam War was still raging. And, you know, they would, they would the, the news, the guys, the journalists, whatever, they would take pictures. And sometimes you'd see someone just sitting there in rubble. Usually it was a woman or an older person just weeping and just sitting there with the dead all around him and stuff. And we saw that with the Iraq war. And, you know, you see, you see it unfortunately too often. That's the picture here. A widow sitting on the ground in mourning. Now, have you ever bought something from the Franklin Mint? You guys know who the Franklin Mint is? All right. You know, every once in a while something occurs, like you get a new pope or a guy lands on the moon or whatever, and then the Franklin Mint has this commemorative coin, you know, and, and my brother used to be really into Franklin Mint stuff, so he would always be buying the coins, and I have no idea if they have any value, but, you know, they're, they're kind of interesting to have. Well, what's fascinating about what I'm mentioning here, for me anyways, um, after the second destruction of the temple, the second destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., the Roman Emperor Vespasian commemorated the capture of Judea and the destruction of the second temple um, by his son Titus by issuing commemorative coins. And the commemorative coins were called Capta Judea. And on these coins, on the reverse side of the coin, there was a female that represented Jerusalem sitting right in an attitude of uh, mourning at the base of a palm tree. And there'd either be a captive bearded male, you know, like the representing Judah, standing left with his to the left of her with his hands bound behind his back, or the standing figure of the victorious emperor or the goddess Victory with a trophy of weapons, shields, and helmets to the left. It's just fascinating to me when you look into history that that was the picture that they chose, and this is what Jeremiah is, is depicting Jerusalem as a widow in mourning. Verse 2, She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. The roads to Zion mourn because no one comes to the set feasts. All her gates are desolate. 
Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. Her adversaries have become her master. Her enemies prosper, for the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone into captivity before the enemy. And so here, Jerusalem is pictured as this princess who has become a widow, and she's a slave, and she's paying tributes or taxes to a foreign occupying enemy. She's gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. Her adversaries, it says, have become her master, and her children have gone into captivity before the enemy. And this is the very first thing that Jeremiah talks about depict your you know when he's talking about sin and the consequences of sin and that is that sin enslaves people Jesus said in John 8:34 most assuredly i say to you whoever commits sin is a slave of sin the writer of proverbs 5:22 is probably solomon said his own iniquities entrap the wicked man and he is caught in the cords of his sin. Sin entraps people. It enslaves people. Now, unbelievers have no choice. They are slaves of sin and of the devil. But it's not true for believers. For you and I who have been redeemed, you and I who have given our hearts to Jesus. Titus 3.3 says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Before you came to Christ, you were a slave to sin. And you might say, I mean, I was not a slave. I was free to do whatever I wanted. No, you were a slave to your passions, to your sinful passions. It's true. It's what the Bible says. Believers, however, we have a choice. Paul wrote in Romans 6.12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are under law, or excuse me, you are not under law, but under grace. Why would Paul say, don't let sin reign in your mortal body if you and I were unable to do it? The fact is, you and I are able. We're not slaves to sin anymore. Paul wrote later on in chapter 6, verse 16, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked, that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered and have been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. We're no longer slaves of sin, but sin does enslave people. Lamentations 1 verse 6, continuing, says, And from the daughter of Zion all her splendor has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture, that flee without strength before the pursuer. Here, that beautiful princess, now she's exchanged her beauty for ugliness. You know, Peter 
writes to wives in 1 Peter 3.3, and he says to the women, he says, do not let your adornment merely... Uh, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Whenever my wife goes shopping, I try to quote this verse. You know, hey, you know, come on. <laughs> not really. <laughs> you know, the Holy Spirit is preparing a beautiful bride for Jesus. Psalm 45, 13 says, The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king of, in robes of many colors. And you know that Holy Spirit, when you give your heart to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you. And you're sanctified. It, you, the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you got hit by a Mack truck that, that, the next breath you took and you died, you'd be in heaven. Because you're sanctified, you're holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. But then the Holy Spirit, amen. <laughs> but then the Holy Spirit, God starts doing a work in you through the Holy Spirit. And it's an ongoing work of sanctification, trying to make you a beautiful bride to present to Jesus Christ. And so when you and I sin, that beauty that's in the inside, it gets, it gets ugly, it gets sullied. It gets stained. There's, there's junk there. And so sin makes us ugly. But it not only makes us ugly, it weakens us. You get here a picture of a deer on the run. She can't find pasture. There's no place for rest. There's no place for nourishment. And that's what life is like when you and I ignore God's Word. When you and I are doing our own thing and we're, we're, not, we're not in the Word, we're not in, God, in fellowship, and we're, we're, we're backsliding, we're, we're running from the Lord, man, it's like a deer that can't find rest anywhere. There's a quote that's attributed to D.L. Moody, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but it says, the Bible will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from the Bible. And that is so true. It's so true. Verse 7. In the days of her affliction and roaming, Jerusalem remembers all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old. And here's the next point. Sin leads to a life of regret. Sin leads to a life of regret. Solomon, in the book of Proverbs, was warning his son about the life of regret that comes from sexual immorality. And in chapter 5.11, he's talking about someone who's, you know, if, you're, if you son, if you give yourself in to sexual immorality, he says this in verse 11, and you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed and say, how have I hated instruction and my heart despised correction? I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. Sin leads to a life of regret. Verse 7 continues, When her people fell into the hand of the enemy with no one to help her, the adversaries saw her and mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem has sinned gravely, therefore she has become vile. All who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Yes, she sighs and turns away. Not only does sin lead to a life of regret, but sin leads to shame 
It leads to embarrassment. It leads to a loss of reputation and a loss of respect. Because you get this picture of someone who is glory, I mean, beautiful and, and a, a princess with all the beautiful clothing and all the respect and you know, everything that goes along with being a princess. And now she's sitting in ashes because of her sin. And she's weeping and she's just, she's remembering back to what she gave up. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that, you know, they started walking with the Lord. They started growing and the Lord was blessing them and stuff. And then they got sidetracked and they fell into sin. And, you know, they look back and they go, man, I had a family or I had this. I had, things were so good and I gave it up. And that regret that comes in and that shame and that loss of reputation and that loss of respect. And, you know, to add insult to injury, the world loves it when a born-again believer falls and stumbles. They love it. You're just like us, you know. And if you've been vocal or visible in your faith and then they see you stumble and they see you, they, they go, man, you're a hypocrite, you know. And they mock you. And the world loves that. They love to mock believers who fall into sin. Verse 9, her uncleanness is in her skirts. She did not consider her destiny. Therefore, her collapse was awesome. She had no comforter. O Lord, behold, my affliction for the enemy is exalted. Another version says she took no thought of her future. You know, I think so often if we, when we're tempted to sin, if we would just sit there and go, you know, what's the, what's the long-term outcome of this? You know, what's it going to cost? What's the price that's going to be paid if I give in to this sin? I think a lot of times if we would stop and we would consider what the end result is, I think that alone would be enough to keep us from sinning. If we would just sit down and go, man, if, I, you know, if we just count the cost, the end result, the tremendous loss, the guilt, the shame, the misery, and the high toll that it exacts from us. Verse 10. The adversary has spread his hand over all her pleasant things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you commanded not to enter your assembly. The, the, the temple was holy. In fact, the holiest of holy, the holy of holies, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, not even a regular Jewish person could go in there, only the high priest and only once a year and only after offering sacrifices for his own sins. God is holy. And so the temple was a holy place. And now what was once holy has been profaned. The Gentiles are just trampling through it. There's, there's nothing sacred anymore. And you see, the same thing can happen to you and I when we fall into sin. What was once holy now becomes profane. There's a verse in the Old Testament that says, Don't move the ancient boundary. It's talking about, you know, the ancient boundary that your father said. And what it's, what it, you know, what it's talking about literally is, of course, you know, in those days, you know, they, they, they had basically boundaries, rocks that they would set up that would kind of mark off your boundaries, where your, where your family tribe plot was and stuff. That's how they kept track of it. And so to move that boundary would be to, to, to take what your parents had set aside or what your grandfather, whatever, you know, the, what's been inherited to you, you take it. And you move it over, probably to try to get more property or whatever. But basically what it's saying is don't move from the things that, you know, were set before you. And I know that there's believers 
who swore or never imagined that they would do something or be like something. And yet, after sin and after giving in to sin and following the deceptiveness of sin, the things that they swore they would never do or never be like, pretty soon they find themselves in a place that they never imagined. And that's the deceptiveness of sin. It fools you. The things that you say, I, I would never do that. And if you give yourself into sin, someday down the road you'll find yourself, it's like, I can't, where, how did I get here? How did I get to this place in my life? Well, I can tell you how. You were deceived by sin. And maybe it wasn't like you just went from one moment you're living your life this way and then the next moment you're you know 180 degrees in the other direction. No, it, does, it doesn't happen that way. Sin is so deceptive. It's just a little compromise here. You know, if I just compromise a little bit here and, you know, and then pretty soon a little bit here, pretty soon here, and over time you don't realize that you've drifted and you're off in a totally different direction. That's the deceptiveness of sin. Verse 11. All her people sigh. They seek bread. They have given their valuables for food to restore life. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am scorned. Again, he had the princess with expensive jewelry, and now she's a widow. She's sitting in misery, trading it off, her, her valuables, the things that she was blessed with, just for basic you know, bread, just the basic necessities of life. And that's what happens with sin. We trade our blessings away for fleeting pleasure, and it leaves us destitute. Those blessings that we had, we just traded away. Now the first 11 verses... Jeremiah here was describing the people of Jerusalem as a princess who's become a destitute widow. And now the next part of this chapter, the widow is speaking. So he's kind of speaking as if the widow was speaking. Verse 12. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see, if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought on me, which the Lord has inflicted in the day of his fierce anger. You know, here the widow is crying out to those passing by as she's sitting in her misery. Man, do you see what's happening to me? I mean, look at how, how bad it is. And sometimes, you know, we can get that way, right? Nobody knows the trouble I've seen, you know. And, um, it's interesting for me as, you know, whenever I start feeling sorry for myself, the Lord always brings someone into my life that has something a lot worse than me. And it's like, okay, Lord, I'm sorry I was whining and complaining. But you know what's interesting about this verse to me? In fact, it's fascinating. Again, I mentioned that Jeremiah penned this, this, this book of Lamentations from a cave inside Jeremiah's grotto. This cave at Jeremiah's grotto is also at the traditional spot of Golgotha. You know, Golgotha means, well, Calvary is the place of the skull. And there was actually an outcropping that it had two caves, and it, it, it basically looked like the skull of a, of a person. That's why they gave it the name, the place of the skull. And that's where Jesus Christ was crucified. And tradition says that Jeremiah's Grottoes is one of those caves that makes up the eye socket of, of the skull. So if tradition, of course, you know, you know, maybe it's not accurate as far as the location. If it's not, it still makes a good story. But anyways, if tradition is correct, however then Jeremiah is sitting in the cave in very near proximity to where Jesus was crucified. That fascinates me. 
Because it says in Matthew 27, verse 32, it says, Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him, This is the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will save him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were, with, who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. That is a fulfillment of a prophecy in Psalm 22, verse 6. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And the reason why I bring all this up here is because of Jerusalem's sin. She is depicted by Jeremiah as this widow and Jeremiah's writing this in this cave underneath Golgotha. And the widow there is bearing her punishment and her shame while passers-by seem to be aloof of her misery. In fact, they're even mocking her. And in that same place, years later, Jesus, who knew no sin, the Bible says, He who knew no sin took on your and my sin. And he was crucified on the cross at that same location. And he was mocked. And he was despised. And he was ridiculed for our sins. So, you know, you look at that and you go, like, yeah, you know, I, I, I think of all the things, you know, I'm, I'm being mocked and stuff. Jesus took that mocking and that ridicule for you. And he bore it on himself on the cross. You're in my shame. Because of our sin. Verse 13. From above, he has sent fire into my bones, and it overpowered them. He has spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all the day. The yoke of my transgressions was bound. They were woven together by his hands and thrust upon my neck. He made my strength fail. The Lord delivered me into the hands of those whom I am not able to withstand. You know, in Proverbs 17, 11, it says, An evil man seeks only rebellion. Therefore, a cruel messenger will be sent against him. You see, sin is a cruel taskmaster, and it puts a burden on people that is unable to bear. And yet Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if you're under the burden of sin this morning, you're in, there's sin that you haven't confessed your sin, or maybe you've never even given your heart to Jesus Christ, you're carrying a burden that Jesus says, hey, I want to take that burden from you. I, I took your shame and your sin on the cross. And if you'll just give it to me, if you'll just surrender to me, if you'll give me your heart, I'll take that from you. And I'll give you my burden. My burden's light. And my yoke is easy. Verse 15. The Lord has trampled underfoot all my mighty men in my midst. He has called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord trampled as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eye, my eye overflows with water because the comforter who should restore my life is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. Zion spreads out her hands, but no one comforts her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that those around him become his adversaries. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing around him. Here the the widow, she's, she's weeping, she's mourning. Nobody, everybody's mocking her. She's looking around for somebody to comfort her. You know, when she sat in her palace as a prince, princess, you know, there were princes around. There were people, attendants that could comfort her and take care of her. Now she's all alone. She has nobody to look to. You know, before the prodigal son came to his senses in the story that Jesus told, he first had to reach a very low point in his life. You know, he had taken his father's inheritance and he had squandered it on wine, woman, and song, basically. You know, he just was living for the day, partying. And as soon as his money ran out, so did his friends. And it left him in a place where he had no one to turn to. And he was in a miserable condition, and nobody would help him out. Everybody deserted him. And it was at that time that he came to his senses and said, man, the slaves got it better back in my father's house. I'm going to go back. You know, sometimes in your and my rebellion, the Lord sometimes makes it so that we have nobody to turn to. The Lord gets us to a point where we reach rock bottom. No one to turn to, no comfort from any corner. And the reason why, He doesn't want us looking around for help. He wants us to look up to Him for our deliverance. And so sometimes, you know, you might get into a position, maybe you've been in sin or whatever, the Lord gets you into a place where you just have nowhere to turn you're backed into a corner, and that's where God wants you because He says, I want you to look to me. I want to deliver you. I don't want you to look to anybody else or anything else. With that perspective, I think sometimes it's not necessarily a bad thing to hit rock bottom with no one to turn to if it causes you and I to turn to the Lord. I used to do Bible studies in the county jail, and I remember this one, one guy, he asked if I'd come during the week to visit him. I usually came on Sunday evenings, and I said, yeah, I'll, I'll come out and visit with you. And uh, anyways, I met with him and he and I were sitting in this little room talking and stuff. And he was kind of telling me about his life and what he had done and stuff. And he had given his heart to the Lord while he was in the county jail. And uh, he had a ways to go still. I don't even know where I've lost track of him now. He's, he might be in prison. I don't even know. But he said, you know, I am so thankful I got arrested. And I am so thankful that I'm here in this county jail with nothing around me. He says, because it's caused me to look to the Lord. 
He says, if I was out, if I had gotten released and I was out on the streets again, I'd be back with my friends. I'd be back doing the same thing I was doing before. But God woke me up and brought me to the... And he says, I'm so thankful. And you could see the joy in this guy. Here he's sitting in jail. I mean, how can you be joyful? He was joyful in jail because it, it's what the Lord took to bring, brought him to repentance. And so the Lord sometimes does that for you and I. Verse 18, The Lord is righteous, for I rebelled against His commandment. You know, in the depth of her misery, her guilt, her shame, and her despair, the widow finally acknowledges the truth. God's judgment is just and right. And it was because of her rebellion that all this was brought on her. I don't know if you've ever shared, you know, shared your faith with an unbeliever and, and maybe you've gotten a response about, yeah, well, when, you know, God's got to answer a lot of questions that I have, you know, and when I get up there, he's got to answer to me, basically. You know, why did you let this happen? Why, you know, I think when the great white throne judgment happens and all the dead and living, great and small, are standing before the God of Almighty of heaven, and he starts judging people for their sin, I think all mouths are going to be stopped. No one's going to be able to say, hey, that's not fair. They're all going to acknowledge, God, you're just. I'm guilty as charged. There's not going to be anybody that's going to be standing out there and go, no, no, I've been falsely accused. Nobody will. Because everything is going to be revealed to them. God's going to say, what about this? And what about that? And it's... Guilty. All mouths will be stopped. Well, the widow got to this point. She says, it's my sin that brought me to this place. Not blaming God for what happened. Not blaming, you know, I was a product of a bad environment. You know, I, you know, I, I didn't get three square meals a day. or You know, whatever it is. It's, God, I rebelled against you. Verse 18 continued. Hear now, all peoples. And behold, my sorrow, my virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. Sin has stolen her young men, which is her youth. And sin has stolen her virgins, her innocence. You know, you look around the world around you. It's, this might be really funny to you, but you know, every once in a while I have a slip of the tongue. And I'll tell Teresa, I got to go put my thongs on. You know, in fact, I'm wearing them today, my thongs. You know, it's got a double meaning, right? Everybody's like, thongs, <laughs> you know. And, and you, you get this picture, right, of a certain kind of underwear or whatever. Um, I don't mean to get too graphic, but you guys know. I mean, come on. Anyways, there was a time when that just meant that one thing. There was a time when the word gay meant happy and lively and debonair. You know, I mean, just it was just a, a happy word, you know. And, and now, of course, for many years now, it's got a totally different meaning. Our generation has lost its innocence and its youth. Just about everything nowadays has a double meaning, and it's usually a sexual perverted double meaning. You think about the age of our children. You know, when I was in grade school, of course, you know, there were certain things that were, you know, kids typically did that they got in trouble for. You start reading the newspaper now about what kids are doing nowadays in school. It just blows your mind, you know, assaults and rapes and, you know, all kinds of stuff going on in elementary school. And you go, wow, we as a nation have lost our innocence. But you see, that's what sin does. Sin steals your innocence 
and it steals your youth. Verse 19, I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. She's finally realizing those things, you know, the things that got her into sin was idolatry. She was worshiping the, na- the, the gods of the nations all around. I mean, Jerusalem, the people of Israel were. They were looking to other things to fulfill what only God alone could fulfill and what only God alone should fulfill. But they were putting other things in their lives. That's idolatry. And when the troubles came, she looked to those things that she was putting her trust in and they couldn't help her. And I see people today that they worship all kinds of things. They worship pleasure. They worship, you know, vacationing. They worship, uh, you know, money. They worship success and all these things. And when, when trouble happens, those things aren't going to deliver you. They're just idols. They're things that you've put in your life instead of your relationship with God. You've, you've put them above your relationship with God. And anything that falls into that category is an idol. And it won't deliver you. In the time of trouble. Verse 19 continues. My priests and my elders breathed their last in the city while they sought food to restore their life. I mean, even the religious leaders in Jerusalem, rather than shepherding the flock, they were just as guilty as the people that they led. And they were out for themselves only. And now they themselves, because they they were just as bad as the people, the people couldn't look to them for any guidance because, man, they were just as bad off as the people. They themselves were trying to just find food to survive for themselves. That's how bad it had become in Jerusalem. Verse 20, See, O Lord, that I am in distress. My soul is troubled. My heart is overturned within me, for I have been very rebellious. Outside the sword bereaves, at home... It is like death. You know, outside the walls of the city, the Babylonians were killing people with the sword. Inside the city walls, in their homes, man, they were just dying of starvation. Basically, in other words, the death that her sin brought on was so complete, there was no escape from it. There was no, there was no relief, no escape from its consequences. You know, and up until now, the widow's been describing her situation even speaking about how God's been just and righteous in what He's done, and it was her rebellion. But there's an important turning point in this verse. She's gone from speaking about God to crying out to Him. David, King David, had a similar situation. By the way, do you know that they just uncovered David's palace in Jerusalem? They just discovered it. Uh, just I don't know if it was this week, but it just was in the news this week. That they they think that they found his palace, not the temple, but I mean his palace where he where he lived, and it probably had a good view of someone's house. But you know that story. You know when David was confronted by sin, the sin of adultery and the sin of murder by Nathan the prophet, he penned Psalm fifty one, and it starts out like this. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions. That's a very important thing, acknowledging your sins. And my sin is always before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. 
we need to recognize the destruction and the deception that sin brings on. We need to recognize our plight, where we've gone and how far we've drifted. But that's not enough. There's a lot of people in jail that recognize, hey man, I blew it. I made the wrong choices and now I'm sitting here in my misery. That's not enough. You need to go to the very next point and the next point is turning to the Lord and confessing those sins. You have to do that because He'll forgive you. The Bible says when we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Verse 21, They have heard that I sigh, but no one comforts me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. Bring on the day you have announced that they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you and do to them as you have done to me. For all my transgressions, for my sighs are many, and my heart is faint. You know, the enemies of the Jews rejoiced in their calamities. But during that time, Jeremiah was given a prophecy. In fact, we, we studied it towards the end of Jeremiah where he gives a prophecy against Egypt, against the Edomites, against the Moabites, against a bunch of other ites, all these people that were around Israel. There was a prophecy against them, their destruction as well. And the Babylonians, the last two chapters of, of uh, actually the second to the last two chapters of, of Jeremiah is just strictly prophecies against Babylon. They were God's tool to, to punish the Jews, but they themselves would be destroyed. And 70 years later, they were. They were conquered by uh, the Medes and the Persians. And it was God's judgment on them as well. You know, when you and I fall into sin, the world mocks us. They rejoice because they think that we are no better than them. And you know, they're right. They really are right. We are no better than them. But there is a difference. We're better off than them. I mean, we are better off. You see, because when you and I get punished and when we go through misery because of our sin, it's because God loves us. And like a loving father disciplining his children, he disciplines us. And he's trying to, he's trying to get that sin out of our lives so that we'll become that spotless bride. He's just trying to do that work in us. But Peter points out, if we as God's children are chastened severely by Him, and sometimes we get chastened pretty severely by the Lord, how much more severe will be the punishment of those who reject Jesus Christ? And maybe that's not a comfort to you. I, you know, I, My mom used to always, I shared this story with you guys, but I, I did a lot of things that I'd get in trouble for and uh, when I was rebelling and going through that period of rebelling. And, you know, my mom... Every time I, if my friends would always get away with it. I'd always be the one that would get busted. And uh, I remember my mom telling me, you know, Donnie, my name Donnie. She goes, you know, God's not letting you get away with that. He's, he's got his eye on you. You're his. And you're, he's not going to let and, and I hated hearing that. But, you know, it was true. And, and, you know, God would stop me and he would correct me. And uh, praise God, at some point I... You know, it took a while, but I finally rededicated my life to my Lord. I surrendered my life to Him. I turned away from certain things that were enslaving me. And uh, I started walking upright. And it wasn't an overnight thing for me. It was a progression. There were t- I still slipped up. I still messed up. But you know what? I could, Looking back now, then I couldn't see it. But looking back now, I can see how God was continually starting to mature me and, and grow me and, and bring me to the place where I am now. I'm still a sinner. <laughs> but... 
God has been doing a work in me. You know, we're reading this stuff. We're reading about sin. We're reading about God's punishment for sin. And you know, just like Jerusalem, there was a future, a good future for Jerusalem. And God has a good future for you and I as His children. And yeah, you might, He might discipline you and He might discipline you severely, but that's because He loves you. He's not out to destroy you. He's out to draw you closer to Him. You know, lamentations are read at least once a year by the Jews on Tisha B'Av. And maybe they're read on other times, I don't know. But I think about especially this chapter 1 of Lamentations. Man, I tell you what, I think if we read that regularly and we thought about the consequences of sin and, and what it does to us and, and how miserable it is, I think that alone also would be a way to say, you know what, I don't want to go there. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to end up in that place. Lord, please keep me strong. Help me in my temptation. I don't, want to, I don't want to fall again. And when you cry out to the Lord, you know, the Holy Spirit wants to do that work in you. He's, he's there dwelling inside of you. 